Hi everyone, you're listening to the Action Is, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Action Is. My name is Melanie Audrey. I'm EWB's Engagement Program Manager and joining me today is Corey Tutt. Corey is a proud Camilleroy man. In 2020, he was New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. He's the founder of Deadly Science, an initiative that provides science books and early reading materials to remote schools in Australia. And he's just recently published a book, The First Scientists. Welcome, Corey. Yama, and thank you for having me. You're also a fellow connoisseur of glasses, so that is... (laughs) I wasn't sure if you were going to come with the clear frames. I've been out and about, so I've got these ones, which these ones sort of turn into glasses, like sunglasses. We were delighted to learn about the first scientists, but first we learned about deadly science because obviously your organisation and ours working in a very similar space. We talk about Engineers Without Borders being a movement of of socio-technical professionals and our stories absolutely drive the big heartedness of the way that we interact within the STEM profession. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to learn more about you and how it is that you came to establish your own charity and then, you know, go on and write a book. So what's your story? Well, actually it starts, it starts probably from when I was around two years old. My father unfortunately left my mother at two and it meant that I grew up with my older sister and and my mum. Often we couch surfed and and moved around a lot. And it was really hard for me as a a baby because my grandmother's mum refused to hold me because she thought I was named after an Aboriginal man and and I was Aboriginal. So my mum didn't get a lot of support and my nan died when she was 42. But I had always had a love with nature. And because we're moving around a lot, I absolutely loved you know, catching lizards in the backyard. That was my favorite thing to do. And we all know like a little kid that does that. For me, moving around a lot whilst I was going to school in Bulai, this is an important, important part of my story. You know, I witnessed a fatal accident that tragically led to the the death of my classmate that was that was hit and killed. And I think that that is the moment where I became a very empathetic person. And, you know, I always, you know, if I ever got in trouble in the playground or something, I always felt guilty and always... It was very sad and I was always empathetic. So I think moments like that make you make you really strong and they 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 make you either do one or two things. I guess probably regress a bit in your behavior, which I probably did that a little bit, but also they they make you appreciate life because you realize how how finite and how how life can be taken away from you very, very quickly. And I remember my pop gave me a book not long after that, which was Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. And that's the book that taught me how to read. You know, I learned how to read. And my first ever science experiment was chasing water dragons into a dam and getting a stopwatch and, and timing how long they can hold their breath underwater. And it was about an hour. So, 
you know, those things are the things that bring you joy in life. And they brought me joy. You know, I sat across my careers advisor at 16 and I, he said, what do you want to be when you leave school? And it was a pretty good question. And I said that I wanted to be a zookeeper or a wildlife documenter because I was read on Harry Butler. I wanted to be the first black fella version. But, you know, I was told by my careers advisor that kids like you, because I went to a school in Dapto, kids like you don't really go to university or, or do those kind of things. It's going to be really hard for you. You should probably stick to a trade or you'll end up in jail or worse. And that was said to me to, to probably spur me on to be you know, to go and probably get a trade. And, but I was a very determined kid, even when I was young, I remember I got told that I was too small for a football team. So I literally tackled every player on that team just so I could make the team. And, you know, I I wouldn't take no for an answer. If someone said I couldn't do anything, I would take it really personally and I would prove them wrong. And, And not much has changed. I always had a respect for the strong women in my life because I had a really strong sister and I had a strong mum and they didn't have the best, my sister and I didn't have the best upbringing, but we, we made do of what we had. I left school at 16 and I went to a place called Boy Upbrook in Western Australia. And I worked at this now defunct wildlife sanctuary called Rugali. And I don't want to be rude, but it was kind of like disorganized chaos. And I lied about my age. I said I was 17. I said I was doing animal studies and I signed up for animal studies and I did it on the plane on the way there. Didn't do any of the modules. I'd literally just did it all, all the assignments on the plane over there and rushed them. And I ended up passing some miracle I passed. But when I went over to West Australia for the first time, I stayed with this couple called Jim and Norma. And Jim and Norma are no longer with us, unfortunately, but they were the first people um, that showed me any kind of love as a child. And then basically what happened was I came back to New South Wales just after my 17th birthday and I started working at this um, place called Narrow Wildlife Park, which is now known as Shoalhaven Zoo. And um, it was an interesting place. I was keen as mustard. And the first day I went there, they told me to get there at eight. I got there at seven. And I was just sitting inside and I was waiting to, for my chance to, you know, to achieve this dream that I'd had of being a zookeeper. And the zookeeper said to me, he's like, why are you so keen? You know, you're going to be scrubbing toilets all morning. And I'm like, I didn't care. I was just happy to be in the zoo. Um, and he would say, oh, you know, you're not capable of doing this. But I would always just always outdo him and prove him wrong. And if he said I couldn't rake fast, I would, I would be there the next day raking twice as fast. And I'll be doing it even better. I like I worked my butt off to to prove it wrong, and then I'd become friends with a guy down there that we became really good friends because we, you know, he volunteered there, and we really like reptiles. And he left the zoo, but we'd stayed in contact, and we were deciding that we we're going to live together. And and then unfortunately, he he just he made a really bad decision one night before we were meant to move in together and he hung himself and committed suicide. And that whole love of animals made me unique and cool. And when you lose that enjoyment for things, it's a pretty scary time. You know, I'm very passionate about animals and nature. And for me, I'd lost that completely. Um, And it was like, I I reckon it would have been easier to lose a limb, to be honest, because at least when you lose a limb, you understand what you've lost. And for me, I, it took me a really long time to work out that I was a broken person, you know? And I saw, I was sort of, I wasn't having fun at the zoo anymore. Corey, did I read somewhere that you once had a career as a alpaca handler? End up 
seeing out an ad in the Illawarra Mercury. And I feel a bit stupid now because I wore my year 10 formal suit, which was a classic suit that I got from Lowe's. And, you know, I was a bit of a good Charlotte fan back then. So I, to give you an idea of what it looked like, I had, you know, a white top hat, a black shirt, white suspenders and a white tie and white belt, black pants and, and white volleys. And it was a bit of a look at the time, but it was that's extraordinary. Charlotte, it was back when good Charlotte were popular. Um, sorry. <laughs> More people should wear an outfit like. Oh yeah, for sure. So I wore this to my alpaca interview. I Did you get I the job? Really, I thought I looked really good and I feel a bit stupid now because I ended up becoming, I ended, he ended up saying to me straight away, he's like, start Monday. And he's, and then eventually later on, I'm like, how many people actually applied for that? And he goes, you were the only one. And I'm like, I literally went to this guy's house wearing a suit to apply for a job that no one else had applied for that obviously going to get. But he still tells that story till today. That'll be one. That'll be a Friday night drinks one. Yeah. There's a really good podcast of James Dixon and I, and it's called walking together. And it's, it's about, you know, me being an Indigenous person and him being a non-Indigenous person and how we had this journey together. And yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. James saved my life because I was, I was probably really depressed at that stage and I was looking for someone to open up to and I didn't really have anyone that I could open up to, you know. It wasn't like I had my best friend here that was, he wasn't alive, you know, he was dead. And I didn't really have anyone. I didn't really have anyone I could confide in. It wasn't like it was something that was advertised. It was it was really hard. And and suddenly those those things that happened when I was a child, they started to come back, you know, and things that I'd suppressed for ages. And I guess, you know, the moment I realized I was a resilient person was the moment where the first alpaca we shore together at um at pack, I think it was called Pikachu at the time. It might have a different name now, but it headbutted me in the face and cracked my cheekbone. And I remember James telling, asking me if I was all right. I something in me just kept me going, and it just like it kept me going. And I knew that I couldn't quit on this job because if I quit it on, if I quit on this job, I w- would have been quitting on life. And uh, I kept going and uh, we went around Australia and New Zealand together and we sheared our packers. It made me, you know, it made me strong as a man. It made me, you know, able to be, to be able to give my opinions in a respectful way, you know, and I think James was very much like a father I never had, but, you know, it was, I was always driving myself for the next big thing because I was never content with just being, you know, just being an alpaca shearer. I never wanted to do that. I just, you know, for me and even being a zookeeper, it wasn't enough. You know, it was never enough. And and maybe that's just the drive in me to to overcome, you know, the adversity that I've overcome, but also that I never really wanted people to tell me what I couldn't couldn't do. And I wanted to be the the maker of my own existence, so to speak. Did you have a at that stage a bigger picture idea of where you were heading, or was it a crooked path, quite opportunistic that led you from one point to another? It was opportunistic. I I had had a friend, you know, from zookeeping get a job at the RSPCA and I really needed a job at that point because I decided I wasn't going to have another year of shearing because it had served its purpose for me. I mean, there's only so many alpacas you can shear or llamas or guanaco, you know, once you've shorn you know, a few thousand of them, then it's, it's kind of served its purpose. And I was going to ask, what's a ballpark figure on the, how many alpacas you've sheared in oh, your career? Oh, we used career? to do 10,000 a season. So I'd say it's probably between 30 or 40,000. I didn't anticipate it, but I saw the very best and worst in humanity at that point. 
when I worked at the RSPCA because I had seen, you know, dogs and cats get rehomed to the most loving people. But then I was at the same time, I was seeing humans treat animals just so abhorrently. And then there was the things that there was the things around that that like you know you couldn't really get your head around it like you couldn't get your head around like how someone could could go and purchase a dog off a breeder or a pet shop and then six months later they're shoving it in a in a cage out the front of the RSPCA with no food no water and treating their animals so badly when they bring us so much joy like I used to love that job in the sense of I used to go into the paddocks and kick the soccer ball around with the dogs and I really loved it and Bouncer was a unique story it had his um, throat cut by this nasty individual but he was just dumped in a bin and literally required hours and hours and hours of surgery to just to survive he was really beautiful I like he gave me a lot of hope for humanity in the sense of like and and life because here is this dog that's gone through so much adversity yeah he doesn't hold grudges and I actually learned a lot from that dog in the sense of like if a dog can not hold grudges towards humans for what humans have done to it, Mm. then what is my excuse for holding grudges, you know? Sometimes Uh, I think our pets are our greatest teachers. Definitely, definitely. Mm. They very much so. I end up meeting my my partner, my fiancé, at that animal shelter and I've never looked back since. I end up studying animal technology and I went to you know, the Garvin at first. And I worked at the Garvin as an animal technician. And I ended up getting a job at the University of Sydney. And that's how the deadly science stuff started. I figured that, you know, whilst I'm still young, I can go and speak to some of these kids and maybe, you know, if they're going through similar things and they want to potentially find a career in science. And and then we started these science talks and they just went off. They became really popular, like extremely popular. Were they face-to-face? This, so this is definitely, face- yep. Yeah. And group yeah. sort of settings, so like a, a large audience or? Well, it was a large audience. It was between, you know, like there was 20 or 30 kids and this was previously with the AIM program, but then the AIM program stopped doing the face-to-face stuff and I continued to do these talks. And these kids would come from Alex Park, they would come from Redfern, they would come from Waterloo and would just talk about science, you know, how does a blue tongue have a blue tongue? Like how do we get food to the space station you know stuff I didn't even know about so I started like learning and and reading textbooks and things like that just to have new things to talk about on a Friday afternoon and they went really well and then I had a had one of the kids talk to me I think he might have been a Monroe boy and he said to me why is it that why is it that you're investing so much time in us and talking about science when none of our teachers are you're the only one that's saying we can do science and I wish I got given like animal books when I was a kid because I really want to be a zookeeper like you were and that that made me a bit teary at the time you know it really affected me because I was like well I got to do something about this so I started googling remote schools and then this thing called deadly science was born and I started finding out that our schools were just really under-resourced. Like there was a school that I found with 15 books in this whole school. Incredible. And I have, you know, schools every single day or every week approaching me to be part of deadly science because of the lack of resources. I think I heard in a previous interview that you personally went into a bookstore and threw down a thousand dollars to get a whole bunch of books to send. It was not uncommon for me to do that. Not uncommon at all. I spent a lot of time 
buying books and packing books. And What's um, the book I've, that you've bought and packed the most, do you think, apart from your own? I've actually got a book next to me that I send. And I'm sorry, it's got a receipt. In it. This book here, as you can see. Upside down. Yeah. This book here is by Sammy, Sammy Bailey. And she's she writes all these really cool, funky animal books. And I'll say that she's got three of these out at the moment. And they're just they just got beautiful illustrations in them and really cool party facts. I would say that like her books are probably up there with the ones that I would send out the most. Matt Chun, Thomas Mayer as well, all these authors. They're probably at the top. But like I, I moved on from like, I don't just send books. I send telescopes. I send microscopes. I send solar kits. I send construction kits. I send veggie patches. I, I send everything because our kids deserve to be able to find you know, whatever, whatever they need and, and their passion. So, you know, we all have different flavors. We all have different needs and wants and, and passions. And so that's why deadly science works. We send stuff that, you know, mathematics stuff, we send chemistry, we send all of it because it doesn't matter what your flavor is or what you like is that you should have the opportunity to explore what your passion is. And that's that basically providing these children with the opportunity to find to find their passion. And that's the most important thing. And if listeners were interested in supporting your work through Deadly Science, how can they do that? They can chuck us a donation, which is greatly appreciated. So they can help us purchase more resources. They can uh, volunteer their time at us. They can uh, share us on social media, like us, follow, you know, because the more people that find out about the work that is being done, the closer we get to the person that may be able to support us properly in terms of, you know, providing us with, with large philanthropic donation or, or, you know, maybe they've got some kits themselves and they can send them out to schools. So it's just important that even if you can't donate that and you, you dig what I'm saying and you love it, you just follow us as well because you're doing your bit as well. And this, you know, our greatest strength is our advocacy because the images we generally see of people in lab coats, so your Thomas Edison's and your Albert Einstein's and I'm sorry, they've had their time in the sun. It's time to, as Australians, uh, as the world, talk about the world's oldest living culture, 65,000 plus years of science and engineering and mathematics. Yeah. Oh, look, we talk about decolonizing engineering at Engineers Without Borders. We have a pathways project, which the first stage started this year, and we're basically documenting and researching the need for the engineering sector, both businesses and individuals, non-Indigenous people to change, and then looking at what that actually requires. So how do we shape an engineering profession that's tangible, relevant, and possible for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? You know, how do we have safe, culturally inclusive workplaces? And, you know, what what would a decolonised engineering sector look like? Well, for one, it, it starts with no longer defining you know, who wears a hard hat and, and why. It's, it's about positive engagement. It's about the right language. It's the right, you know, we're not doing this to feel good. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, sometimes the best journeys start with words that we don't want to hear. And, and those words that we don't want to hear generally, this isn't really applicable to Aboriginal people because it's built on a white system. Sometimes the best journeys are those walk together and, you know, we need to listen. Um, we need to listen to our Aboriginal communities, our schools. What is it? that we need to do to make it more, to make engineering safer for people of colour, safer for women, 
safer for you know our lgbtiq community how do we make it safe and it's not just putting you know like it's not just doing a reconciliation action plan because sometimes when we do a rap plan we forget about the action sometimes the best action is done with your ears and then preparing for that so i think that you know we have a lot to do as a society in in terms of making things equal and fair in engineering we do in science we do i myself have to improve in areas but you know the best journeys of those walk together and 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 they are you know and that and this is what we need to do as a society we need to walk hand in hand with first nations people and and say you know what the past wasn't okay but let's celebrate the culture let's celebrate the the beautiful things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people bring to this country and it's not sport and art you know let's let's encourage kids let's let's give kids recognition for things other than sport and art. Absolutely. Last year, we worked with a group uh, from our sector to establish Engineers Declare, which is the sector's response to the biodiversity and climate crisis. And it was absolutely key when we wrote out the declaration to ensure that we were acknowledging First Nations as the original engineers. And just to go to what you said about about the listening. How do we listen and learn from Aboriginal people's, you know, original engineering practices and their deep, deep and lasting knowledge? How do we weave that into our engineering practice? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and part of that is is going on the journey. We have in Australia, you know, the world's oldest fish traps, which are 40,000 years old, but the pyramids are only 4,000 years old. How can we celebrate the pyramids if we're not going to celebrate the oldest structures in the world that are right here in Australia? We need to start acknowledging them. And to do that, we need to acknowledge the, the terrible history that comes with that as well. But when you acknowledge the bad and you, you accept responsibility for the things you've done wrong, you also get to enjoy some of the things that we've done right. Absolutely. Well, in turning to your incredible book, which is called The First Scientist, Deadly Inventions and Innovations from Australia's First Peoples with beautiful illustrations by Black Douglas. They really caught my eye and I'm sure every person who's um, picked up the book would say the same. Mm. I'm just curious, do you have a favourite first in the book? I like all the book, but that would be unfair for me to say because I, I wrote the thing, but... I think that would be fair. Now, I wrote about a lot of my deadly scientists in the book towards the back of the book, and and I wanted to make it relevant. So not just talk about the past like it's not here, but also talk about the present science that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are doing in this book. But to see their faces, you know, when they get to see themselves in a book, you know, like for me, like imagine, you know, you imagine back to when you were a kid and you're picking up a science book and you see Albert Einstein in there, but you don't see David Urupon, you know, Australia's greatest inventor. He's on a $50 note. Now, if you were to be a young kid and you were to see yourself in a book, imagine what that does for you to know that other kids around Australia, potentially around the world are going to be reading about how you love science in your classroom. What a proud moment. And it's like, you know, and the kids of colour to see themselves as scientists is is something I hope that is life-changing because they deserve it. And anything, any accolades that come to me or deadly science along the way are completely irrelevant unless we make it our responsibility 
to make those awards accessible to them. I've seen some beautiful images via your social media of the children celebrating and receiving their first copies, you know, coated up in the white lab coat. Yeah, just really celebrating uh, the success of the book as success of themselves. It's been really heartwarming to see. And imagine what that does for kids, right? You, you're so in a important. classroom and you put on a lab coat suddenly you're not a you're not a child you're not in a school anymore you're a scientist and without sounding um egotistical but without deadly science and without me working with that school i doubt that that would have happened yeah that is a very special thing for me because i think that that's up there with teaching kids how to read in in the greatest achievements of my life i'm 29 and i have created something that that kids in remote communities are finding their passions for and they're just absolutely loving it. And and you know what they're doing at the same time? They're doing what I did when I was a kid when people told me I couldn't do things and they're proving them wrong. So important. It's very special. It's very special. Absolutely. I wouldn't mind going to just a couple of questions around before you wrote this book and you were conceptualising what kind of impact were you hoping to achieve? Why was it important that you write this book? I've sent over 20,000 resources off to remote schools now. I've spent majority of my time every week in post offices sending books. I wanted to create something that was going to be a gift to the next generation in the sense of non-Indigenous kids learning about Aboriginal people in a way that never learned about Aboriginal people before in the hope that they would respect our people more. That's the hope. But on the other side of the coin, I wanted Aboriginal kids to grow up in Australia feeling strong, deadly, passionate, because they could see themselves as scientists and and coming from the world's first scientists. And I didn't care if one copy sold or a million or, or whatever. It didn't matter. As long as there was a book I could send out to those kids that would help change it for them. And... The idea in my head was to to make it accessible and not worry about the politics. Work with who you know and work with people that will help you write this book and do it well and do it in a respectful way. And let's let's change the future. Let's let's give these kids a bit of inspo to to try to strive and and achieve and 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 a book they'll enjoy. When I came up with the idea. I probably had eight or nine books that I could have written. There was so much I wrote, so many people I spoke to. But I want this book to be not about me as an author, but to be the thing that people look back in 10 to 20 years' time and say, you know what, that book led a a whole new conversation which led Australia to becoming a better place. Wow, audacious goals. But, you know, and I think that that's, that's why it's written in the way it is. Yeah, which is remarkable. And also to see a book that's targeted to that age group, that seven to 12, where, you know, their ideas of self are really forming. They're starting to forecast, you know, who and what they want to be in the world. Actually, that that is one question I was hoping that we can squeeze in. 
In terms of engaging with the the people, the communities, the schools, the children who helped formulate this book, what what was that process like? How did you go about that? It was quite challenging at times. There was a lot of conversations. There was a lot of hard conversations. There's a lot of emailing back and forward. There's a lot of excitement. I knew I had to write about the Robinson River kids and I knew I had to write about the Mediala kids. I knew I had to write about, you know, the Good Island kids that we work with. I wish I could have put them all in the book, to be honest, but I I knew I had to put them in there because what they were doing, you know, and again, I might get all the accolades for it, but what these kids are doing, they're changing the future for their people. And they and they're doing it and they're doing it with a smile on their face and they're doing it without, you know, with with the like with the most joy and and I think that it's just really important for for young people to to realize that they are you know, they're making these changes and it's a big deal. Like it's a really big deal. So we deadly science, we celebrate them any time, any chance we get. And, and again, the other thing as well is that when you, when you flick on your news and you flick on your newspaper or whatever, but you know, majority of the images you see of Aboriginal kids is negative. So who's telling the good stories because to be negative, to have negative stories, you must have good stories. And I think that's something that Deadly Science does really well is that we tell the stories of the kids that are loving remote learning, they're loving school, they're they're loving science and, you know, I will defend them to the teeth because they deserve to have a future where they're not persecuted due to their race. Well, Corey, we're just about at time. I just used the last couple of minutes for the guests to do a shout out for anything that they're passionate in. Our podcast is called The Action Is. Love to hear things that you're taking action on, be it your book and, and your charity or otherwise. But yeah, it's just a shout out moment for you to soapbox. Yeah. Chuck us a follow on Deadly Science or whatever your social media platform is, but also check out the Women in STEM movement, check out Indigenous Literacy Foundation, check out your your local Aboriginal community and see what they're getting up to. And, and shout out to all the mob out there that may be listening. Amazing. Corey, thank you so much for sharing your story, for being vulnerable with us, for taking us on a journey which was eventful, it was wild, it was deadly, and congratulations so much on on the success of your book, The First Scientist. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Corey. Thank you. The Action News production team is grateful to soundscape artist Julian Rausch for creating our podcast music. To learn more about this podcast and to access this episode's show notes, please visit our website, ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please spread the word, like and subscribe and leave us a review. We look forward to spending time actioneering with you again during our next episode. 